Hello, bonjour, ni hao. This is John James and welcome to another episode of Champagne Strategy, where it's my job to deconstruct world-class strategy, growth, marketing, and the latest tech with just a sprinkling of champagne. This is a show where we talk to the modest achievers and the less famous but more interesting people of the business world, many of whom keep a very low profile and some of which are even from the underground. One thing is for sure though, all of my guests are people who are senior achievers but still aren't afraid to occasionally get back onto the tools, into the weeds and get their hands dirty. They will often have battle scars to show skin in the game and money in play. So I've known Alison for quite a long time and she's a dear friend, an accomplished academic and a transient worker. But that's not why I wanted to talk with her. Has she got a PhD in behavioral economics? Yes. Has she worked for multiple firms in very different sectors to apply this knowledge? Yes. Has she lived in multiple countries to hone her craft across cultures? Yes again. More recently though, she's been actively challenging the orthodox view of talent management within the tech sector. Before remote teams were trendy or mandatory, depending on how you view it, she was curating high performance teams distributed all around the world for a fintech firm, which was recently sold to Automatic, the parent company of WordPress. This is why we needed to hear how internal branding and talent management can be a growth factor for any firm. In this episode, we explore what her secret source is to managing effective teams. We learn how to align staff, how to motivate them, and how to get the most out of them to achieve shared goals. If you've ever been in a management position, you'll know that the quality of your team is a large contributor to your own success. Here's how you create the modern team of the future. Thanks for being on the show, Alison. How's it going today? I'm good, John. How are you? Good, good. So let's just get straight in. For people who don't know who you are, let's give a really quick summary of who you are, what you've done in the past and what you're doing now. Well, who I am, that is a very, that's a very big question. What have I done in the past, I guess? I have started to call myself a pracademic because I did a, a PhD in behavioral economics, but I also really dig working directly with people in organizations. So I guess I just get involved in a lot of stuff is the way to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Very eloquent. I like it. Okay. So behavioral economics background, obviously deep in academia if you've done a PhD. So then you've applied those general learnings into into different parts of, of the business. Yeah, exactly. And I guess the most recent kind of adventure that I was on that was building a remote distributed purpose-driven software startup for five years like helping the ceo with everything basically that wasn't software development i did i did everything else so so jack of all trades uh in the tech world i like it and what are you currently working on right now Currently, I'm working on a book about the processes that we that we put in place to build this kind of happy utopia kind of happiest place on the internet (laughs) Of a, of a company that we had. So uh, writing a book about those processes, doing some consulting and coaching as well. Right. Okay. Well, this is why I wanted to talk to you because I like economists. I was going to become an economist, but then you've done the behavioral side, which deals a lot with, yeah, I would say, you know, psychology of humans and how they interact and behave in, in the real world. And sometimes the, the nice models that we create don't always work out in the real world. So I like the fact that you've then applied them for 
quite a period of time in a practical sense. So I really want to talk about how you've applied those learnings from a, I would say, a organizational or cultural manner, and then how that has positively led to growth within the company and, and maybe executing strategy that's been effective in a, in a commercial sense. So give me an example of how you've created a culture that, that has done exactly that. So I guess the I guess the first thing is that is understanding that when you get people together it's messy and thinking that thinking that it's like pulling a lever or putting together a formula is probably not going to work out in your favor so just understanding that there are complex interplay between people is the first place to start so then also understanding that people want to be they want to feel inspired and they want to feel like their life has meaning. So then creating the work environment, the processes, the norms, putting those things in place that allows people to feel that will then, it then, you know, it just shows up in the fact that people don't leave. Um, so you have like really low attrition, you have really high productivity, very happy people. And that all contributes to the bottom line, I guess. So Right. Okay. Um, really want to dig down into, into some of this. So you're saying it's not as easy as just creating a, a project management system, getting everyone to use it and putting some tasks in and, and ticking them off? Well, I guess you can do those things. I mean, one of, the, one of the things I can say is, right, so I had the opportunity to create this from scratch because I was one of the first people that joined with the founder in this organisation. And, okay, I'm an economist, so why didn't I create a really amazing quantitative assessment <laughs> project where I could have had, you know, spreadsheets with KPIs and all sorts of, of numbers that we could tick off. And I guess the thing is because I also think that what gets measured gets managed, but what gets incentivized extrinsically also gets gamed. So... <laughs> 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 so it's just like a mixture of Peter Drucker's quote and uh, what's the other one? <laughs> I don't I don't know who says that, but I know it's like distortions. It's like distortions to incentives if you're extrinsic, extrinsically motivating people. Yeah, well, and Goodhart's law sort of comes into play here a bit as well, where, um, you know, it, it's to do with like the inevitability of the metric becoming problematic in the, in the long run. So what yeah. it, so it gets gamed or incentivized. So really interested to talk about that because when I go into companies as well, the incentives or the KPIs or however the executives pushing towards or incentivized to, to work towards de definitely does influence then everything downstream. So, for example, if we've got an executive who comes into the company and is he needs to increase profitability, you know, the quickest way to do that is to look at your cost leaders and, you know, slash and burn, bang. But the long-term effect of that may compromise that, that KPI. But in the short term, may be able to achieve it. So I find, you know, setting metrics is very difficult. So let's talk about if, if you're not having structured metrics within your internal teams, what what are you doing then? Are you communicating vision and, and tying people along with that and then looking at a range of sort of metrics in the back end but not being bound by them? Like how does that manifest itself? Yeah, so that's the, the definitely, you hit it on, you've totally hit it on the head, the um, communicating vision and that the people, everyone is on board with your vision and you hire people who are aligned with values. And so if, if there's kind of like you have the fundamental principles and values and vision aligned with your people then it's a it's an intrinsic motivation to get up 
every day and to do the best work they can possibly do. And so there was a lot of, and I know economists will hate this, but there was a lot of kind of qualitative <laughs> feedback. And, and in a high-tech environment, you need really high touch. You know, we were a distributed company. When we were hiring, we would hire via chat, like via, you know, we're doing Slack text chat to do interviews and then doing a Zoom interview. And in some cases, we wouldn't meet people in person for six months or more and you've hired them, brought them on board and you're trusting them with your company and with your product and all the rest of it. So the qualitative high touch kind of contact, making sure that there's lot, designing the communication to make sure that there's lots of interaction between people as best you can. And then you, then you know the vibe, like, and I know it's completely not scientific, but <laughs> you're talking to people and, and you hear from them is that what's their challenge? Like, what have they done well? What's their, what hasn't gone well? What are their roadblocks? And then you can work as managers to remove those roadblocks. So it's a very, kind of like yeah, a, it's a very constraints view of, of management then, isn't it? Like you look at constraints or bottlenecks and then see what you can do to solve mm-hmm. So I really want to talk more about this because it's it's almost internal branding, right? Which is perhaps everyone, when they talk about branding, they think of logos and, you know, you know associations and it's very advertising or Marcom based. But um, equally important is the internal branding, internal comms and how we tie everyone in together to do better work. Give me some more ideas about like, did you define, hey, this is what the company is about and put it like a manifesto or brand voice and tone and values or was that communicated all the time or did that not exist? Was it all kind of laissez-faire? I think it was, I mean, I think it was present in everything that we did. So from the job advertisements to then the way that the questions that I asked in the interviews, so they were designed to specifically look for certain kinds of values and behaviours to, and the, the advertisements themselves would attract people who aligned with those values. Like, for example, I didn't use words like, are you a coding rock star or guru or whatever? Because, and so we used, like <laughs> used words ninja. like, pardon? Or LinkedIn ninja or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody was a ninja or a rock star or a guru. I used words like kind-hearted and like you are either an introvert or you understand introverts because, you know, we working online, you tend to get quite a few introverted people. And even if you're an extrovert, you need to understand introverts. <laughs> And so we sort of, the language that was used in the advertisements would mean that it was part of the tone and the the branding and the values of, of what we did and why we did it. And then our offer letters were very, like they would make very specific reference to autonomy and mastery and purpose. And non-compete clause was something like, in all matters, we ask that you use your own good judgment. Like there was no... <laughs> We didn't have legally saying you can and you can't do this and that and all the rest of it. It was just like radical trust right up front. We wow. trust that you are here to, you know, we trust that you're a decent person and we trust that you're here to do good work. And this is the extent of our non-compete. And yeah, so it was just, it was all, it was in the values and the mission of, and the purpose of the company was present in all the things that we did. So Great. Okay. So from a hiring perspective, that filtered out people that wouldn't be uh, suitable. Uh, I'm assuming mm-hmm. it would attract people that were more suitable. Also though, I'm really interested because you've been operating or had been operating this company uh, remotely uh, 
almost completely remotely for a number of years before COVID, where everyone is forced to do so. And I remember back then, it wasn't too long ago, actually, but it's almost like looked down upon us like, okay, well, you're not a serious business. You don't have a, mm-hmm. a real estate footprint. You don't have a head office. You know, what are you doing? Why are you doing remote? And the flip side of that is that when you're in a physical location, it's a daily um, reinforcement of some of these values and beliefs. You know, the founder walks in, you know, people see them in the morning, they pick up on the vibe. So you talked about vibe. But how do you create a vibe in a remote environment? That's that high touch, you know, like it's about all of your communications. So the tone that you use when you're chatting on Slack, if you, emojis are very important, obviously. So, (laughs) and and just being, you know, being respectful and even over explaining something rather than giving a really terse answer, making sure that, you know, making sure that it was received in the right way. Or if you did just shoot off an answer that didn't, that sounded a bit harsh and be like, oh, sorry, I just reread that and realized that I didn't mean to sound like that. And it's not, it's not being overly like Canadian or Australian and super polite or whatever. It's just being really conscious of the fact that you don't have your tone of voice or body language or anything like that. And I mean, I guess, so I've seen in co-located companies where the vibe or people being all together has actually been a very negative thing. So you kind of end up with this bums in seats mentality of where people need to see you kind of present in front of your computer even though you're looking at Facebook for seven and a half hours a day and nothing's getting done <laughs> they'll be like oh she works so hard you know <laughs> yeah it's um it's funny that's it's, it's uh, like a visibility bias mm. a lot of consultants management consultants they get trained in this to be always present visually and and around mm-hmm. the office as like a, a self-branding and promotional tool. So a lot of people do that internally as well. <laughs> you know, putting the, the jacket on, on the back seat yeah. when they're away from the desk to look as if they're there, even if they're, they're away. People rushing around the office really fast, even if they didn't have anything to do to give the, the set exactly. they were busy. So are you talking exactly. about Exactly. And I find too that when you're, when you're co-located, you kind of have these, you can end up having big personalities who have the kind of the charm and the charisma as well. And they can seem larger than, you know, larger than life or what can I More say? More confident than perhaps they are. Yeah, there's kind of like the confidence and competence kind of <laughs> ratio. When you're working remotely, your work speaks for itself. You either are or you aren't getting your work done. And I was actually invited to an e-commerce company that's a co-located Headed company in Switzerland to talk about how we work remotely writing software, how we're productive and also profitable. And just trying to explain to them that the, I mean, one of the key things was that what you do is not related to how much time you're sitting in your seat. Like, are you getting your work done? Well, so. I really want to touch on this because, you know, I'm, I work remotely with SaaS companies, you know, two at a, a very sort of senior level. And these are discussions we have. One uses uh, Asana as a, as a project management tool. Mm-hmm. One uses more of a, a less rigorous, but a more daily meetings, which then we talk through what we've done before, you know, which is classic stand-up, and then what we're going to do today. And then, you know, we report back because they're a smaller organization. But what I've noticed, though, is that it, sometimes these systems incentivize task velocity, as in, okay, let's create heaps of tasks. The more tasks we get done by virtue, we'll be more productive. But obviously... From a strategist's point of view, that creates like an output bias. And what I'm really looking for is the outcome. How do you ensure or did you ensure that the right things were getting done, not just things getting done? Well, I guess it's easier in a product company because there were, was it contributing to the next release um, of the software? Yes or no? <laughs> so 
that's kind of like the things that need to get done. Was it fixing critical bugs and whatnot? So I didn't, I didn't manage that side of it, but what we all did as a company, you know, the, the product side of it, but what we all did as a company is have the stand-ups that you're talking about. So we would all talk about like what we plan to do in the coming week, uh, what we've done in the past week, and then there was often huge discrepancies just because things would come up. But just even when we broke off into teams and we had... Uh, specific kind of support teams and ex- developers and and my people team then we would have our stand-ups within a team it was really always it was often about what was the critical like mission critical thing that needed to get done let's i mean we're sort of reaching on to metrics here and kpis i want to delve kind of a deeper into here so i heard that you designed a performance management system from from scratch right but you said there wasn't any sort of hard metrics in there. I mean, obviously, if you've got a software, there must be releases or patches or something that you can quantify, right? So did you look at that and then the qualitative aspects and sort of put them together? Tell me about the metrics that you're measuring. I guess the kind of the the grand vision um, was that we would have 100,000 users, you know, by a certain date. And that was kind of like the one thing that we were working towards but when it came to performance management, I mean, there were a few iterations. One of the things we did was it was very experimental. There was a very experimental mindset in everything uh, that we did. Like I would, you know, I'd say, I, I think this might work. Let's try it for a quarter or half a year and then iterate on that and, and try something else. But the, the kind of performance management process, which was, well, actually, no, performance review process, we called them check-ins. And so it was really just a conversation between myself, the team member, their team lead, and um, the, the CEO. And so, like, it might seem overwhelming that there were so many people kind of sitting in one call to have the conversation, but what would happen is the, the team, we had, a, like, a list of things that you could sort of give some feedback to yourself about. So what went well, what could have gone better, like, how would I rank myself like based on gold star, silver star, blue star or whatever. So just very fuzzy <laughs> concepts. And then the team lead would do the same. And then we would have a discussion to see where there were discrepancies. And so if there were discrepancies in that there, it was usually that the team member had rated themselves lower than their team lead. And so then we would have a chat about how they can get more, confidence and feedback that their work is better than they realize and sometimes if there was you know a gap in the other way then we could talk about what we can do to improve that so it was really a conversation and that was the whole plan is to just keep the conversation going and always know that we were there all of us we were there for everyone to win like we just wanted everyone to have a good life you know the big game of the happy fulfilled meaningful life and that was where the even those check-ins came in as well. It okay, wasn't so it about, like, it wasn't about like, punishment. It sounds like a very open communication process here. Okay, so maybe less structured, but there's a core meaning to, to why you were doing certain things. Yeah, it just, so it was structured in and there was, a, there was definitely like a, a tempo to it. So that in your first year, there were check-ins every three months so in the first month, I would talk to people three or four times a week during the first month. And then in the first year, then we would have, che- you know, check-ins every three months. Then after that, it was every six months. So there was kind of, there was a structure in the timing of it. 
but just not in the way that performance reviews are done sometimes in a... In a HR setting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and what, did they give you feedback as well? Like, how did you measure that? Not really. <laughs> so we did... We did, we did a couple of times for meetups. So when, because we would have every year we would get together and and meet each other in person so that we could synchronize our nervous systems and understand, you know, like when somebody says something, you know, understand their tone of voice and whatnot. So we did MPS a couple of times for the actual, for the meetups. And one of the problems with that is that what I think is a five out of 10 is what someone else thinks is a 10 out of 10. So... (laughs) That's also one of the problems with asking people to fill out surveys on these scales as well. So, Okay, great. Well, that's, uh, I suppose, a source of response bias, right? <laughs> I, I want to hear more about the vibe because when I go to companies, it's really evident for me, and this I'm talking about a physical location, of, but you pick up on my vibe if you're working remotely as well. It's really quickly apparent to me whether there's a buzz of, of mm-hmm. excitement, whether there's energy. You know, you call it the vibe and I'd have to agree with that. Companies that that have that buzz, you know, there's phone calls coming in, there's people chatting. I find they grow a lot easier than ones that are stagnating. Like you can you can spot instantly when when the company isn't doing well. You know, people aren't energetic in meetings, not really responsive. There's a bit of apathy. So how do you ensure that within the firm this kind of buzz and and positive vibe continues or or is created in the first place? I think that I think it's got a lot to do with the what can I say it's got a lot to do with the personality of the people that you hire to start with like high conscientious people that's the you know high good people and get out of their way is what Brent always said and I'm just like I'm looking for the conscientious people and I think how you create the buzz online is that you have a psychological safety and and also the idea of professional intimacy where it's okay to kind of bounce things back and forwards like it's very you're very okay to ask questions of anybody in the company and there's no kind of hierarchy in terms of I have to go through my team lead and then they ask somebody else or whatever you can just directly you know shoot someone a message in in a channel or just ping a whole channel on Slack one of the things we did was we'd really tried to one of the things we did track I have to say like the um quantitatively and i think this really helped with the creating a vibe is that we really tried to keep the balance of um private versus public messages to be more in the favor of public like everything is default public so if you wanted to ask a question or if you wanted to discuss something that happened in a public channel so everybody could see it as opposed to direct messaging people because then a lot of the organizational kind of the organizational vibe and the organizational knowledge gets lost in dms and then it doesn't seem like things are happening as well so then yeah so i think that had a lot to do with it was that i would check the slack stats every now and then and make sure that we were defaulting most of the time to public so but you have to in order to do that you have to people have to feel comfortable that it's okay to ask questions yeah no i I like that so so go easy on the on the dms on slack or something yeah Go, ask everything publicly, like unless it's going to, unless it's going to, you know, embarrass somebody or break some confidentiality or something like that. Then obviously those things need to be need to be private. But like everything else, there's no reason why it can't be public, and it really contributes to building up the norms that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to kind of 
chit chat, fire things back and forwards, joke with each other. And then you get to really see people's personalities as well. So I think that the critical thing is that people feel safe to do that. Yeah, great. I think you raised a good point there about creating that safety first and foremost, because uh, in some cultures that's uh, a bit frowned upon or perhaps Mm -hmm. less orthodoxy. I I find one of the best things about American culture is that, and this is a massive generalization, but it's a bit more accepting of like the fact that you don't have all the answers and uh, Mm -hmm. you can be an expert and admit that you don't know something and it's not really frowned upon. It's just something that they'll add to their collective thought for next time. Whereas I think, especially in Australia, and maybe to an extent the English side of the culture, it's it's kind of like frowned upon that you don't know what you're talking about, especially in senior positions. So they'll never admit to the fact that they don't know about something. So that's that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, we definitely didn't have that problem. We were very open about the fact that learning is a lifelong thing and, you know, we always iterating, always wanting to make things better and it's great when things are good and it's even better when we can when we can get some feedback that's going to make them better so it's the growth mindset then which is you know an episode yes. that I, I did in episode one and yeah look yeah. I, I find it in company cultures like people either have a fixed or a growth mindset and, and it's like dominant um and that filters through the whole organization mm-hmm. and manifests itself in things like you just mentioned asking questions openly and, and learning from that and i find from a revenue or commercialization growth perspective is really critical as well because in dynamic environments things are changing so much that you need to update and maybe change some of the assumptions you were making previously that you thought were were true (laughs) things change you know things in those dynamic environments that you're talking about yes things change hourly daily you know priorities change depending on what's happened you know particularly with software like there's another update that you're not in control of and then you have to scramble or whatever it's just it's very dynamic and the ability to have that if you have that agility and you have that kind of sense of confidence and safety in your team that you're all like working on it together and and you know we'll figure it out and there's not kind of the one person who's the guru who holds all the and holds all the knowledge and everybody else needs to be careful not to look silly in front of everyone. So That's I think that really ha- contributes. How did you then incentivize or reinforce this this vibe or this this culture to keep it going? Or were there specific, you know, bonuses or something that you were providing people, <laughs> or was it through just, you know, positive feedback or encouragement? How did that work? Um so again, it was really about it was really about how do we design, how do we create the the most kind of optimum place for work is not something that gets in the way of our self actualization and maybe something that can contribute to it. So it was what can we do to make everything easier? So we had you know allowances for equipment, you know office equipment or technology or whatever. We have allowances for learning we had we for a while we had unlimited holidays unlimited vacation but unfortunately we weren't taking them so then we had then we decided to have kind of a five-week vacation that that we that then we could notice when people were banking up too much and be like you want to take a holiday there buddy like (laughs) so then it would be obvious when people hadn't taken enough holidays so just like providing all of the things that all of the things that made life better, but then really thinking about what people would need in terms of feedback, encouragement, and kind of, you know, we would do things for everyone's birthday, like we would send a present to them and it would be something that their team had brainstormed about what they would really like. 
and you know christmas would have online christmas party and sorry an online christmas like, party what, what yeah well, how does that work <laughs> Uh, well, holiday party, festive season party. But yeah, in the holiday season, we would have a we'd have an end of year party. So how that works is that everyone <laughs> everyone invoices the company or uses their company. Everyone would use their company expense card. We had everyone had expense cards that they could use for whatever they needed, as long as it was going to help them do their job, do their job better, and everyone could buy their holiday food and then we would all get dressed up and we would we organized a time when most people could be online some people had to be awake at four o'clock in the morning but we'd all get together and play games and uh, play some christmas games holiday games play some games and dress up wear our you know eat our food show like it would be local things from the areas that we were in and show you know like we had people in spain and people you know in North America, Australia, India. So we would sort of talk about the talk about the the different local traditions and traditional food and stuff like that. And yeah, it was lots of fun. So Great. Okay, I like it. Now we did talk previously and you mentioned and we both agree on this, this concept of blitz scaling. And yes. I find, I've talked about this to multiple people, I find there's certain like laws of diminishing returns and um, certain things mm-hmm. like building a brand, which is kind of what we're talking about here, takes time, it takes trust, uh, and you can't push it, no matter how much resources or money you put behind it. So tell me about what you disagree with, with Reid Hoffman here on blitz scaling when it comes to like the internal culture and hiring. Yeah, so that's you're right that I really disagree with the I'd really disagree with this concept of hiring and, and firing kind of like as a like really fast to get basically to get rid of people. So this kind of just churning through people as a as as if they're disposable. So this this is I know it's a pro- probably a, a way to get really fast to having the a high percentage of really top people, I guess, in a way, but it's it also ends up you're managing by fear. Like everyone who's working is kind of in fear of being one of the people who are churned out really fast and fired. And people who are afraid are not often very... Um, there's a different kind of creativity. So when you feel safe and when you feel afraid. And then you have people... If people are afraid within a company, they're always trying to, you know cover their ass or watch their back or whatever. So it's kind of like a defensive and maybe more competitive and not collaborative. And that's kind of like that difference between zero sum and positive sum thinking. And so all of that just, I think is from my perspective is just really toxic. And I mean, not to mention that it's just basic, like human basic ethics to treat people um, as sovereign humans who are not sort of, interchangeable with capital like one of the problems is we've seen labor and capital can be interchanged you know easily within our models in that we can trade off you know hours of labor for you know for machinery or whatever and then that just completely discounts the fact that these people have communities and families and hopes and dreams of their own and I think it's just a really dehumanizing and really unhealthy way to kind of see everything. So that's my long answer to why I don't like it. Basically, I don't like it because (laughs) I think overly, I think slow HR and slow hiring and being intentional about who you have on your team will get you the, the dream team 
in the end, I mean, we had like nearly 0% attrition, like people would come and not leave. And that's kind of, you know, that's pretty cool for a tech company and that saves money. I like it. So yeah, you raised a good point there about the collaboration. So you're kind of getting to like synergistic effects there that are lost in a kind of fearful sort of hierarchical environment, maybe mm-hmm. um, ruled by sociopaths, right? Yes. This, it's, <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, <laughs> how the way that we have been operating things has been selecting for sociopaths. So I would like this to be the start of, you know, like this was kind of, I see this as a proof of concept of what we did with the culture and the people and the way that we did things. And just to see how happy people were, like when I would do one-on-ones every month, that's another high touch thing that I did as far as like culture goes. I do one-on-ones every month with most of the people in the company and all the team leads. And I mean, and even at, you know, performance review time, you know, people were, deliriously delirious with joy like about their work and about the company and about the team that they're in and just couldn't quite believe that that this to start with people would believe that this if this was real they're waiting for the shoe to drop and and I always like to joke that it was like just a little bit less than a cult just a little bit more than a business so <laughs> I like it okay yeah because there's a famous book about cults and, and culture so more about that later you know there's actually a, a guy a consultant in in Australia who is is contracted by corporate management to root out and get rid of uh, psychopaths because they're so well disguised sometimes I mean they can cause yeah. like massive destruction mm. unbeknownst to many and they're really hard to get rid of so yeah this guy specializes in, in basically doing that after the fact, after they've been hired, yeah. actually. A lot of the way that business, that firms can be set up, the design of things and the things that are measured and celebrated and, and managed and it, a lot of times selects for sociopaths to be in positions of management. So, yeah. Look, from my perspective, one of the biggest preventers of growth is is humans. So people yes. who work for, for the company. And I look at it from a constraints point of view as well. So look at the incentive structures, hierarchical issues here. Is the goal a collective goal or are we all siloed and, and um, we need to sort of be brought together? So really interested to see, obviously, you didn't have the biggest team there, but if it grew bigger, managing and, and controlling that shared collective goal can become more difficult, especially mm-hmm. as things separate into departments. So did you use like a cross-functional team thing here or when you added more team members, what challenged this collective goal setting? Yeah. So obviously, like you said, people are messy and people are, (laughs) so the, as far as the constraints or whatever, I think the cross-functional part comes in again, communication. And I know I keep saying it all the time as if it's the only thing, but is keeping everybody up to date with what's going on and getting people together regularly, even if it's online or in person, means that people are more aware of what's going on with other teams in the company. So I think as we got bigger, the the dream was to have to have kind of people working from different teams on different uh, projects. So be able to pull people to from support and engineering and to you know, to work on specific special projects so that things weren't siloed. Yeah, great. I also want to hear about the things that didn't work and what you did to, mm-hmm. to solve them. So maybe some ideas you thought would improve things, but then they were spectacular failure. So again, growth mindset, we're willing to fess up to our mistakes. What, what went wrong? I don't know. There's so many things that go wrong. But the, and again, growth mindset is that, you know, f- for me, the perspective was, and for everyone, like this is something we reiter- reiterated as well, is that, 
there are no failures. Like it's an experiment that gave you alternative information. So <laughs> you ran an experiment and you got some unexpected information. So it wasn't a failure, but there were a lot of things that had alternative information, particularly, I mean, like you can, you can tell from what I've been saying is that it was very kind of open environment and open communication Sometimes we took the democracy too far, like we would try to, you know, make a decision or even something simple as choosing a date for when we would go on, on a company retreat and it would take a lot. <laughs> and one of the things I said is, you know, maybe this is why hippies don't get anything done is because... You know, well, the there's, there's always one person that can't make it, right? And then if you yeah. catch a date, then the other person can't make it. So, like, you're always going to get yeah. some kind of loss, aren't you? Yeah, just trying to be too committed not being flexible on the fact that, that everyone has a say and everybody it's in, and that principle most of the time is really, really positive. And then sometimes it didn't quite, didn't quite work as planned. So then it was an iteration on the approach. So, so, so there's going to be a balance between dictator and, and democracy. Well, you know, benevolent dictator is the ideal. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Okay, that's great. And any other thing that, that sort of didn't work out and um, how you solved them? What can I say? Or maybe things that went and pushed the company in the wrong direction away from where you wanted it to go inadvertently or and how you got it back on track. Yeah, I mean, I can say, I can say very much from, from even one of the things I got wrong right from the start was, was, as I was saying before, about the language used in advertisements. You know, the first, the first recruiting round we did, all of the people who applied were pretty much the same people. So, and I was like, hmm, <laughs> not a lot of diversity here. And so that was a, you know, that was a sort of let's change the language and, and try again. So there's that. As far as pushing the company in a direction that it didn't want to go, uh, I can definitely think of off. things that I did wrong. Yeah, yeah, personally, exactly. So, um, of things that I did wrong and, and probably set um, kind of a wrong tone as well for some people. So one of the problems with working remotely and having Slack and, and having, you know, GitHub and Twitter and all of these things where you're communicating remotely is that these things want to be on your phone sending you all these notifications and so one of the, one of the things that we, we end up putting in place was kind of like a default no notifications policy because you're, the attention gets so fragmented from all of these notifications that you never have any time to do any deep work. And so that was something that we had all noticed that we were getting so many, you know, so many pings that we could never focus. For me personally, I was kind of like a helicopter parent sometimes with the with the team and with what was going on. So I would, you know, sleep with my laptop in my bed and like <laughs> open the laptop as soon as I open my eyes in the morning. I would check Slack at like two or three o'clock in the morning and, and be, you know, if I was waiting for an answer to something and that I, f I personally wanted to do that because I was keeping on top of things but I know that's not a healthy thing to do for the culture. And I don't think that anybody else expect, was felt ex like they were expected to do that too. I just know that's not a great thing to do. One of the things that would have been very helpful and I just um, had this conversation with Brent last week was that we really should have had coaching or mentoring right from like almost the beginning because we were doing things all the time that we'd never done before. And in many cases, what most people had never done before because the remote um, environment working remotely was still so 
rare, I guess, for doing what we were doing. It was just, you just feel like you're drowning all the time. Like you're just constantly drowning in things that you don't know how to do and you're constantly figuring it out, which is great if you love solving problems. Like I do, I love solving problems. It's like, oh, how do we fix this? I've never seen this before and I love novelty, but you can get too much of a good thing. Like you can get too much novelty and too many things you've never seen before. And then you end up thinking, I don't know how to do anything. I'm actually completely useless at everything. And that's where um, I got a coach and she was like, you know, she was able to tell me like, you are actually swimming. You're not swimming in a way that you've ever swum before, or maybe in a way that anyone's ever seen swim, swimming happen, (laughs) but you are swimming and what's happening is actually good. And so that I think for anyone with a startup or doing something that they've never done before, the, I mean, one of the benefits of being a bootstrapped lean kind of having that mentality is that we did a lot of things ourselves. I learned how to use Photoshop, you know, like we made our own cups of tea and rather than getting things catered all the time, but then you think that you need to be frugal on the dollars and sometimes it's worth it to not be frugal on the dollars. So you're used to someone else making your own cup of tea. Where, where do you live? You got servants or something there? I don't see yeah, a cutlass. Yeah, I'm a queen. No. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, when you, when, you know, when you have a, a meeting or, or a meetup or whatever, rather than getting the tea and coffee catered, you know, you buy your own tea bags and, and do that yourself rather than paying $5 a cup. It's just water and a tea bag. So. Okay. Yeah. Look, I find I was having this discussion the other day about the problems with agile and in a software environment. Like, so output is one of the things that incentivizes, right? With task output mm-hmm. and production, uh, which is okay when you're building a product, but then there's mm-hmm. problems with that making sure that it's not internally focused, it's ex- externally focused to the customer. Otherwise that output is actually not really providing any value. And another thing with it is that the problems you're trying to solve, it's great, you know, taking an agile growth mindset, but the problems you're trying to solve have been solved by other people before. So mm-hmm. I like what you're saying about a coach, because if you have a young team that's growing and maybe inexperienced people, then there's no reason you can't inject some wisdom into to what you're doing. Even if you're creating a product that doesn't have many competitors, that the structure behind that, some of the decisions you're making have been done before. Exactly. And that's, and that's about that having someone who has experience even in another environment to say, oh, I've seen something like this work before. Maybe you could try it out there. And that's a lot of that was a lot of what I was doing was taking theory, academic theory, and then like a bunch of different stuff that I read on Harvard Business Review or, you know, like <laughs> in sort of business cases that were for more, I don't know, hierarchical organizations and I would sort of I would read a bunch of stuff and then I would kind of hack it to be a bespoke thing that worked for us and so when you have a coach or a mentor they just have all of those years of experience of things that they've seen in other environments so that you're not just constantly saying throwing things of of experiments to see if they work so yeah, otherwise you can just be endlessly doing experiments, right? Yes. <laughs> um, it's trying to prove things that have already been proven. It's like, okay, why are you doing that? Now, you mentioned, yeah. you know, startups are, are like a PhD. I found that an interesting comment. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I found, I found it to be quite similar to, to when I was doing my PhD is that, you know, you're creating something new that hasn't been done before. So with a PhD, the idea is that you create new knowledge that hasn't been done before. And if you have a startup, I mean, ideally you're doing something that the market isn't completely saturated. So you're doing something new as well. So you're testing out, you're testing out if anybody actually wants what you've got 
when you're doing a PhD, you're constantly testing if anybody wants to know what it is that you're, <laughs> you're discovering. So if anyone really cares, the so what question. Yeah, and I guess it's also really... Long, it's, longer than you're expected. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. You, you know, if you're in a position of any responsibility, it never leaves your mind sort of 24 hours a day, seven days a week never goes out of your mind so that's definitely how it's similar i like it um, i've never heard of that before but it, it makes sense and what are you currently doing now any new projects that uh, you want to sort of talk about or tell the listeners so as you know i i did one-on-one coaching with the you know people in, in the company and had a lot of experience with creating kind of online sense of belonging and people were quite happy working online i've noticed that some people are uh, having struggles with the, with remote work and, and whatnot with coronavirus. And I've also noticed that there there's a lot of talk about what's going to happen in the fall, particularly in North America and, and Europe with, with, you know, new cases and more lockdowns. And there's a lot of discussion about the mental health aspects of, of how we're dealing with the current situation. And so something that I've done before is to when something is long, when something is going on for a long time, is to mark 100 days from there and, and commit to having something done within 100 days so that then I have this sense of getting through time. So my idea is, having said all of that, is to have like a, an online 100-day sprint that we get a group of people all together and we, as a way of creating like a sense of sort of togetherness and purpose through those 100 days and then we'll do it again to get through to April. And the idea is that we will get through this one day at a time but do it 100 times. That's the plan. So it's kind of like having like almost like a combination of a friend, a mentor and sort of an external source of human motivation to, to keep you going throughout the day. Yeah, because, I mean, that's one of the things when you're working on your own and even if you are working in a remote team is having that accountability, you know, like does if a task is ticked off in Trello and nobody is there to see it, does it really matter? So it's kind of like having that crew of accountability to go through this next 100 days through to the end of the year and then another 100 days. And so the idea is also, I mean, I, I don't know, I think everyone's noticed that linear time appears to be broken over the past six months. Yeah, linear time appears to be broken. Specifically, what do you mean by linear time? I mean that there's there's no kind of like objective day, weeks and oh yeah 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 yeah. So, so the thing with me is you know I'm working in three different time zones, so basically everything's happening all the time. I just constantly got notifications and fifty different programs, and you know there is work I could do at any minute of the day, but then you have one day rolls to the next because you're working Saturdays, which is a crossover day with North America, and then you know you've got UK crossover. So I, I get about six hours sometime on a Sunday, maybe, where no one has contacted me and it's becoming rarer and rarer. So what I was doing was, and this is what I talked to you about your idea. I was talking to another business owner and unrelated, but we just call each other at five o'clock every day, 5 p.m. and go, hey, what do you get done today? What problems did you have? Really informal. But because I was talking to someone else about it, it was a shared goal and I stated it publicly to someone else, mm -hmm. then I was kind of like subconsciously accountable, even though there was no financial relationship or, or, or professional relationship in, in terms of that person keeping me on track, is more just the fact that I told someone else about it kept me more motivated and more 
more accountable during the day. So I found it really good. So I think your idea has legs. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's what you're saying is like a mini stand up, like you would do in a company, like, you know, and that's the thing, like, even if you're working in a company, just having that accountability to say, this is what I did and people are hearing you and this is what I'm going to do and people are hearing you, even if you work on your own on it. And that's that idea of like, this could be a really long period. This kind of pandemic and situation looks like it's going to go on for a lot longer than we definitely, than we thought in March, right? Like this is now the 180th day of March that we're in right now. So (laughs) it looks like this entire situation is going to continue. So as a way of, of kind of, of marking that off and having some, because there's, you know, all that, the research in that our brain needs those novelties. They need, our brain needs novelty in order to have temporal markers of when things have happened and, and to understand the passing of time. And when every day is like exactly the same day, when, you know, you're just inside the house, you can't go out because it's lockdown and you're just doing the same work or you're sitting in front of the same screen, but you're socializing, you're doing your work, you're being entertained all in front of the same screen and there's no kind of novelty happening for your brain. It's a lot. So, I mean, I know I'm proposing another online thing, but if we have that kind of, if we have that kind of metronome, well, (laughs) it's a thing to look forward to. Like it'll be a marker. It'll be like, I've completed a hundred days and this is the day that I complete a hundred days and then we'll have um, a celebration or whatever. But the idea when everything is so uncertain is to be able to work with one day at a time. Like it's also really hard as humans because we are, we're kind of wired to make plans for the future. It's one of the things that distinguishes us from other animals is our ability to prospect into the future to say, these are the things that I want to do in the future. And when everything is so uncertain the way it is now, and I can definitely go into a much longer talk about the way that we construct our identity and, and all of that sort of thing in terms of, of, of what we do. But the thing is that we can't make those plans because we don't know exactly, we don't know what's going to happen because everything's so uncertain and changing all the time. So that becomes very hard for our mental health as well, particularly if you're the kind of person who, you know, needs to plan for the future more than others. So the idea is getting through this one day at a time, doing it a hundred times, having a marker in the middle, celebrating, doing it again, then we'll be in spring and who knows what's going to happen. So. Well, no, it's great. Um, like just coming back to the hundred days thing, when I was using my example of a, of a fellow business owner that we call each other every day, um, there's a lot of things we didn't talk about work because we didn't want to talk about work because, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of stuff we did, I didn't really like. So it was just great uh, talking to someone else about, okay, what are you having trouble with? And I read this mm-hmm. good book or, you know, did some exercise today or, yeah, we found the motivation sort of extended into many different things. And then, you know, that person will give you a tip and you give that other person a tip back or it's working or you know a system or process that you found made your day better for example and that shared information actually worked really well and then it's something you would end up looking forward to every day you know the five o'clock call instead Mm -hmm. of most of my phone calls for communication which you just want to avoid right so (laughs) of course who wants to talk to clients (laughs) yeah so yeah i really liked it okay that's great i'll put a link to the 100 what is it called officially still a hundred days of purpose i think so i'll put a link to, to that and if people want to get in touch with you and sort of vibe with what you're talking about what's the best way to get in contact with you so linkedin i think right. linkedin is probably 
one of the best though. Yeah. That's good. And uh, what about any books you're reading right now that you'd recommend other people read or uh, specifically on this topic or related to this topic? So related to this topic, I guess so many books come to mind. I'm reading Simon Sinek, The um, Infinite Game is one of the books that I'm starting on. The one I'm reading at the moment I'm really enjoying is it's a book by it's a book by a guy called Joel Solomon. He is he's done a lot of impact investing. It's called Clean Money and just talking about the the responsibility um, of investing money in a way that is generative and regenerative for communities and people and the environment as well. So great. Okay, that sounds good. And the website resources. Is there a particular website out there that you'd recommend people visit or use? You're saying HBR? Yeah, I I love HBR. Like <laughs> I know it's kind of it's so I really do. Yeah, I mean, I've got some, I've, I've got some great reading materials on that. Especially, I, I think you know, there's some questionable, how would I say, there's some critique of some of the articles and the validity. Mm-hmm. But I find they're a lot more credible than other sources in terms of their yes. thinking and the conclusions that they're making. At least, like some quantifiable reasons why. Like, there's generally a study behind it. And then also, I find them quite good for just changing your thought process. So there's this one on nonlinear mm-hmm. thinking that was really interesting because it's something Elon Musk talks about in terms of this no one understands nonlinear growth curves and obviously mm-hmm. you know uh, case in point a pandemic and how you know a virus yes. spreads is a nonlinear way and i find the same patterns happen in business especially mm-hmm. with growth and obviously you're seeing that with tesla right now there's this 10-year period of of share price you know x and not much profitability not many cars getting produced and then all of a sudden bang you know, they call it the uptick, but mm. people go, oh, well, what happened just before the uptick that, you know, made it shot up? I'm like, no, that's like 15 years of all these little yep. things that are combining and building. And then there's this flashpoint and it goes up. Mm-hmm. So I find that article really good. So I'll put HBR in the links. What about a piece of yeah. tech though, that you can't do without that helps do your job better? I was going to say, in, a t- in addition to HBR, I really like this um, Emergence magazine. It's amazing. So I love their Instagram account, but just this, I got this the other day and I just have, it's, it's just pure beauty. So if people need something like you know, beautiful and in- inspiring to kind of, to go through, it's definitely worth buying. Wait, give the us an explanation. What is it exactly? So it's called Ecology, Culture and Spirituality Emergence Magazine is what it's called. But they have, yeah, they just have really great articles and, you know, poetry and things like that. So I was blown away by it. So, yeah, I was like, just lifetime subscription to whatever it is that you produce. Yes, thank you. (laughs) I like it. And so the tech. Yeah, the tech. Well, I mean, the tech I can't do without. I mean, obviously, like all all of my gadgets, but, you know, MacBooks and whatnot but I really like my uh aura ring even though it tells me that I don't sleep enough I used to use a bio strap and one of the reasons that I I use those is because to check on my heart rate variability and that tells me whether or not I've overdone it and I need to rest more because if I've you know don't have good heart rate variability I've stressed myself too much and sometimes I don't know that unless the tech thing tells me I'll just keep going until it's already too late. So I discovered uh, when I was doing my PhD, I did a lot of stuff to do with heart rate variability and um, nervous system and that sort of thing. And once I understood that, then I started tracking mine to be able to put the brakes on when it was time. And I've just got, I'll tell you something else I just got. (laughs) 
There's this thing called the Apollo Neuro. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's like this little thing you put on your wrist and then you um, set it for if you want focus or if you want to be calm or whatever. And it apparently stimulates your nervous system to give you the right sort of uh, frame of mind. So I've only started using it for the past couple of days, but I'll tell you how it goes. Okay, well, I'll keep it up in mind, but it does sort of remind me of like healing rocks and crystals and the people who <laughs> sell them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an electronic crystal. <laughs> <laughs> it has snake oil vibes about it, but hey, let me know yeah. how it goes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, great. Well, look, uh, thanks for your time, Ali. It's been a pleasure and hopefully some of the listeners will have picked up a couple of things and I encourage them to reach out to you because you're doing a lot of consulting these days as well. And um, I'm going to join 100 Days of, of Purpose because I think it's a great idea and let's see how it goes. Amazing. Thanks so much, John. It was so good to talk to you. No worries. That was great to delve into the internal marketing side of the brand. Everyone says that a brand is what a brand does. And if your staff aren't advocates, it's usually a sign that you have a disingenuous brand which is destined for contraction. This is why it was great to see how we can create high performance teams which are distributed all around the world. Recent events have forced the hand of many of us to think about different forms of team management across borders, across different time zones, which is why it was great to hear how Allison was doing it before it even became trendy. We're going to talk to one more experienced HR professional who works for a multi-billion dollar major worldwide brand very soon on a similar subject. He just happens to coincidentally be a massive champagne fan. I just don't know how this keeps happening to me. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. Just a few things before you take off. Remember to sign up to the e-newsletter so you are alerted before anyone else when the next episode drops. You can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and don't be afraid to say hello or give me some constructive feedback. Also, visit the blog page of this podcast to view all the links and other material referenced in this episode. Thanks again for listening.